Are you ready? We're so ready. Okay, uh, tell me, Siko. Yes. How good are you with accepting criticism? Uh, no, better than I think I am. Uh, and tell me your first reaction, okay? Yes, bring it on. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Uh, open science is a waste of time. Ooh, wow. I'm, I'm very eager to find out who said that. But I think, uh, no, I don't think it is. Okay, well, if you can stay objective, I think you passed the test. So we're going to talk about it further later. Okay, All Astrid? Right. All right. Now, up to the show. Ta-da-da. Welcome to the Road to Open Science podcast, your guide on everything open at Utrecht University and beyond. And beyond. What is replication and what does it mean for different disciplines? It started in psychology and sociology, but now it's making its way to the fields of medicine and now even history. Today we're going to be speaking to Pim Huyne and Peter Huista, who are working on a project of historical replication called Once More with Feeling. And I have a feeling that sodomy and vibrators are going to be on the menu suddenly. It's getting very hot here. It's getting very hot in here. (laughs) But before the news, I actually want to talk to you a little bit about some feedback I received from my colleagues. You know, in open science, we want to be open and we understand this is a movement that we should embrace criticism. But recently, I actually got a couple of critical feedback on the open science program in general, which I would like to share and see how how would you react to it. Tell me all about it. So the first one was that uh, a colleague said that, you know, all this open science thing is is not efficient at all. It's a waste of resources. How do you respond to this criticism? If it means that you get people talking to each other a lot and you waste a lot of time with that. Or you have to store things which are very expensive to store and they're not very useful. Or you have to put a lot of time documenting which nobody will really look at. Mm -hmm. It's just not efficient. It's much more efficient just to attack the problem and then go to the next problem. Yeah. I I get that criticism. I I understand it. But I think we might all have gotten lost of the sight of the fact that maintenance and doing normal science and doing things a little bit more slowly and deliberately can actually be more beneficial to science and humanity as a whole than doing everything as quickly as you can. But but I do I do get this criticism and and in some cases it's it's right criticism. Sometimes you go down an avenue and you you take up people's time, and there is no clear benefit or gain. So yes, you should think about why you do open science and why you put in these things in practice before you start on that. And I think that's also one thing that the advocates of open science always appreciate that it is I mean reproduction or maintenance is a by itself a profession. Yeah. So you should not expect from the same person to do everything, but that's why you have to expand. And I understand that if you ask the same person to do everything and more, nope. that becomes, you know, uh, very frustrating. But here's the second one. About the criteria on recognition and rewards. Mm-hmm. The statement was that these criteria are very wishy-washy. Like, you know, the old criteria, H-factor, you know, citations, ah, yes. they are very quantitative. You yes. know what you want. You know, also amount of grants you get or amount of graduation uh, that you attend or the PhDs you graduate. It is clear. Yep. But when you talk about the narrative or, I don't know, 
tell me about how you feel about your science, things like that. It's wishy-washy. I can sort of understand that. What's your reaction? Well, life is wishy-washy to start out with. And uh, yes, I, uh, I've heard this criticism quite often. And I think in some, t- some cases it's a just criticism. But I think if it's a criticism to the fact that, uh, for example, in this reward and recognition vision, we're asking people to formulate goals of their team, of themselves, and judge each other and themselves by these, yes, subjective criteria, that that in itself does not ma- make it like uh, unfair. It actually makes it more fair and more transparent because you know exactly what you're being judged on because that's something you talk about. And these external criteria that seem very quantitative and very hard, uh, I think if you look at them closer, you'll find that that they're not that quantitative and hard and actually very easy to gamify. I can, I can, I can have a lot of people uh, be uh, become a PhD under my supervision if I just cut corners. So I, I get the, the criticism, but I also would invite people to think about what life would be like if you would actually have a conversation about what your common goals are and what you want to do within that scope. I mean, what I take here also on these CVs, and I think that's a perspective that's become super prevalent, even when you call it a narrative CV, is that evaluation of scientists about evaluation of the person and the achievement. And even the word CV, it always means, what have I done? And why Mm -hmm. am I such an important person? Or why I need or deserve uh, more resources, for example. It's all about what I am, even if you do it narrative, uh, you know, with, uh, with all the new measures that we are putting. It's less about what you have done for others or why do you matter for the Institute. And this is always have been very, you know, subtle behind, uh, we call it, you know, community service. Sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, there is a little corner in the, in the, in the CV that say, although when you are actually interviewing a colleague uh, to hire, for example, a new staff, this is the top of the list of the things that people pay attention to. That can I, you know, work and collaborate with this colleague in the future? And that becomes very important, you know. And that is a part that I guess has to become more uh, prevalent. And maybe we should not even call it a narrative CV, but it's a collective CV. Yeah. What has been the role of you in a collective achievement and why the institution actually benefited from your presence? And that's yeah. not in the CV. Maybe a narrative CV, it, it's, it's still the same thing in a sense that it looks at an individual. And I, I completely agree with you. You should, you should judge people's actions within the context they're working in. Like if you work in an environment where innovation or maintenance are not supported or are not encouraged, then you can't really expect people to put that on their CV, right? Because that was the one thing they were not supposed to do. So yeah, I, I actually totally agree. Okay, well, so we take criticism very positively then, Sika. Yeah, and keep, and keep it coming because we like it, because this is a conversation and it's really about people and about their purpose. So, yeah, I like it. Uh, but shall we get on to the news then, Sandy? Let's do that. What's on the news, Sika? Well, last time we were talking about your doubts around, or actually your questions you had around the field labs. You were posing these very basic questions like, so what's the experiment and how and who is controlling this, etc. You turned out to have a very good gut feeling. You might have been a journalist. It's all over the news, man, like since last week. I think it started when it sort of was combined with this other uh, big test, which is going to happen for all the events. 
and yeah. the numbers were really high. I don't know. People were talking about 900 million, 1 billion euros funding for something which was called an experiment. And then suddenly you know, everybody became sharp. But it's all over the news. Really, yeah. in the last week, it is exploding. It has even taken to high ups. I would say I saw in the newspaper that Annalene Brednord, who is actually herself a professor of bioethics and a member of Senate, mentioned in a newspaper interview that the issue with this specific field up is that it is not respecting open science and open science has to become a norm. Or uh, Lex Bauter, who is a leading figure in writing the Dutch code of conduct, scientific code of yeah. conduct, he also criticizes so it's a very big problem if you have not predefined your protocols. So it has, you know, started from, you know, we want to do citizen science and I thought it would have been a very great opportunity for doing that. And now it has become to a very basic discussion of, you know, how should we do science? And the open science has been on the list. So I'm very happy about it. Yeah. I do think the 900 million that was talked about, or even more than a billion, I don't think it all went to the experiment. Uh, if you look at through it, it's also like for all these locations to start up and get running, etc., and then close after three days, which no theater in their right mind would ever do. I think it's also to cover those costs, right? But there were two things. So there were these field labs experiments which yeah. started a bit earlier and there was testing for Tuhang, testing for entrance, which was a yeah. much bigger event. Oh, okay, yeah. So actually field labs is much more scientific than, you know, the other experiment or things. But then the discussion, I mean, scientists haven't really disclosed everything beforehand. And that was mm -hmm. where the main yeah. discussion went. So that if you want to really be a scientific research, you have to follow a certain protocols. And there was a lot of discussion, which... They have done it all the style. And I think with the new expectation of how science should work and open science, this was not a good match. And uh, that started a lot of discussion. Uh, but tell me, did you actually participate in the experiment? Did you try to get tickets? Yes, I did. Oh. Now, uh, the, the, my story is this. On my birthday, I got a year subscription to Artis. So I can go there with my son. and Artis the zoo. The zoo. And I think I've been twice this year <laughs> since I got... And so we had we were refreshing, refreshing, refreshing to get a ticket to go to Artis. Uh, and we got one. So we went there this Sunday. And um, I, I'm not sure which one of the two type of uh, experiments they were, but it's a shitty experiment because basically we had to get tested at forehand. So we did. And then afterwards, there was no test. So I, I actually tried to find out where do I go for my post-test, but there, <laughs> it was not included. Yeah, and that's actually what one of the criticism that it was not sort of obligatory. It was not even strongly required no. from all the participants to test afterwards. And this was an experiment about propagation of a disease during the event. So if you don't yeah. test, you never know. But that's not. A, this is not a test. <laughs> In no way. Yeah, maybe we should have pushed our uh, our show into the inboxes uh, last we time. We should have. Yeah. But then maybe I would have prevented the opportunity for our two-year-old to see the Ole Sanchez, which is his way of saying oh, elephant. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're completely right. But I think actually the Road to Open Science is actually ready to be nominated for a Pulitzer oh, Prize for investigative yeah, yeah. journalism. I've already put us in for a nomination. No, for, no worries. <laughs> what else is in the new Seco? Uh, I read a nice blog by Wilma van Wezenbeek. Uh, she used to be librarian at the TU Delft and part of the Open Science Program. She's now Director of Education at the VU. And she wrote a blog about why education and open science have something to do with each other. And she says that 
We need to manage our educational resources. We need to make sure they are findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. And uh, coincidentally, I've actually been working on the same topic for a couple of months now as well. Like the question, okay. why do open science and education have something to do with each other? And uh, the answer is a bit longer than I can put here in the podcast. So I'll just briefly use this as, as a commercial for the white paper that I'll put in the show notes that I'll invite everybody to read and comment on. Have there been other things going on? Well, there was a little Twitter fitty on the question whether there should be such things as open science rankings. Have you Ooh, seen this? Rankings. Rankings. We don't like rankings. You know, my, my no favorite, one of my favorite academic Twitter accounts is it's called uh, University Vankings. <laughs> and uh, so this was actually picked up by the Journal of Trial and Error, which is a, a novel journal that uh, tries to do things a little bit differently. And um, I reached out to them for a short introduction to a debate that they're organizing in June, June 15th at, I think, 3.30. Okay, I'm curious. Hi, my name is Max Bautista Perpignan, and I'm the host and one of the organizers of the debate Open Science Rankings. Yes, no, or not this way. And we think this debate is really exciting and also very timely because we want to encourage and, and debate the idea of open science rankings and in specific transparency metrics and the idea would be to discuss how should open science uh, practices be encouraged and whether uh, rankings and, and leaderboards are the way forward. The event will take place online on Zoom on June 15th at 3.30 Central European time and you can register for free by going to the website of the event um, on jtrialerror.com slash debate. So now it's time for so Open Science in Action and we're going to be meeting Pim Huyne and Peter Huistra today because together with Alka Rijpa they received an Open Science Practice Fund last year which is a small but significant financial stimulus to get projects going with a specific open science touch to it. The focus of their project called Once More with Feeling is to explore what replication is like in the field of history and what it can teach us about the historical research cycle. So maybe, Pim, could you please shortly introduce yourself? And what drew you into open science? It's great to be here. I'm Pim Huyne. I'm a, a cultural historian with a specialization in digital history. I'm a, an assistant professor at the Department for History and Art History. Um, yeah, digital history is a very, very broad topic. But yeah, in my research, I, I use computational techniques to analyze history. But I'm also interested in how the digital datafication changes our scholarship in itself. Now, and this drew me into open science because the digital provides us with, with new and, and also exciting ways to, to communicate with a wider audience, to disseminate our scholarship. Uh, podcasts are, well, uh, among one of these things. Um, but it's, I believe it, it, it will also have an impact when it comes to replication. So, so that's where I'm coming from as far as this project is concerned. Right, cool. More on that later. And Peter, what about you? I'm an uh, assistant professor in theory of history, which means that I teach and research uh, the history and philosophy of history. So that's history and philosophy of science, but then for historians uh, more specifically. Um, and that's how I got into this uh, this project on replication, because I'm 
I, uh, I see myself as a historian of science, interested in one specific discipline mostly, that is history. Whether it should be replicable, one of the things that we assume for scientific knowledge in general, but does that apply to history as well? An mm-hmm. unexplored question yet. And this is how I, how I got here. So maybe could you explain shortly what this project, Once More with Feeling, is about, Pim? Ah, I was hoping you were going you were gonna to say <laughs> Peter. Because it is actually Peter who um, who started this project. So so Peter asked me, and and I uh, told you before why I was very excited about this idea and why I think it is very relevant. Um, I see it as sort of a test, replication in history as such um, is is absent. The the word replication it's it's not a category that historians think in. Um, you could argue that it is something that we do as historians, but but maybe we'll get to that later. Uh, replication as such isn't isn't a relevant category. We think, Peter and I, think that it should be relevant, that it at least should be something that we should think about, and maybe something that will get even more relevant in the near future. And therefore, it's simply interesting to learn how, how replication would work in history, whether history as it is done now is replicable, what it even means for history to be replicable. Um, that, that's, that's sort of the open question that this, uh, uh, yeah, that's at the center of this project. You don't want to repeat history. It's not about the actual event, but it's about how the history has been narrated. Am I understanding correctly? Maybe it's, it's more easy if you use two different words to to discern the two you have on one hand the past all the things all the events or everything that has taken place before this exact moment and then you have history which is also a synonym of the past of course but which also refers to the study of the past yeah so history can be both and then what we're interested in is indeed not replicating the past itself but replicating the investigation of the past which we then call history is what we do in the discipline of history so we want to replicate the work uh, done by other historians, or we want to find out whether it is possible and useful to do so, to reperform or to try to reperform the work done by, uh, by other historians. I like that distinction you have there, Peter, because you're saying whether it's possible and useful. When would you say that replication of historical research is useful? When it is useful... Um, well, that could be in a, in a number of cases, just to give two opposite outcomes of a replication. So you reperform, so let's say example one, you reperform someone else's research and you, you are not able to acquire the same outcomes. Um, that would be interesting in itself because you could, this would be a starting point and to uh, uh, and you and, and that would that's why it would be useful because then you can start wondering why is it impossible to to come to the same outcomes is that a problem or is it legitimate uh, it could be legitimate because for example you could have different interpretations of the same events also you could have an outcome which is the opposite that you are able to replicate it and that would be in historical terms in scientific terms i think in many disciplines would not be very scared if that would happen for historians this would be uh, this would be very uh, something very special, I think, because they're used to thinking about the discipline as endless debate, and now they now you see that outcomes, in fact, are replicable. So that would also be a point out to it, a point to its usefulness. 
when I talk to my historian colleagues, sometimes they say, I think they do joke, but now that makes sense. They jokingly say that it's very difficult to predict the past. And I think that's a common joke there, but probably relates to what you're mentioning, that you know you review the past in two different studies and then you come up with different outcomes. Is that the essence of replication that you're talking about, Pim? Yeah, let me think about this. I, 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 I'm not sure. I think... Um, historians don't like the idea of replication for the reason that Peter just mentioned. Uh, history is seen as an, as an endless debate and every interpretation of the, of the past, if based on facts that we acknowledge as such, is legitimate. So th it's, it's, it's no use to try and get to the same results because everybody is um, um, can can have their own interpretation, their own perspective on the past. Uh, so talking about the same results, getting to the same results, would it make sense and, and, and would even take some of your personal commitment to what you're doing away? That, that, that's, that's, I would say, the fear of, um, of many historians. But is it only then about interpretation or is it about more of the, uh, the, the research cycle? I, I get that you, you have sources and you work from those sources to actually uh, some sort of selection and from there you do interpretations. What part of that process can you actually replicate, do you think, Pim? Yeah, well, th that's a very interesting point, um, exactly because, well, this claim that every interpretation would be legitimate it's an open question whether this is the case, that, that's what uh, Peter said before, but also it doesn't leave you of the responsibility to uh, do sound research, of course. And, and this research is more than coming up with your very own personal interpretation of the facts. It is getting your facts right, of course. It, it also has to do with uh, getting from your source material, from the stuff that you find in the archives, to the information that you are actually going to use, uh, you're not going to use the entire archive, for example. So you make an, a selection, you do source criticism. This is these are the, the hallmarks of good uh, of of um, of the uh, of historical scholarship, right? But but um, you should also be transparent about this in your scholarly output. And then the second question is, how does this interpretation really work? So does it mean, uh, do you have a case that you're going to study or you're going to study behavior of your colleagues or in your department? What is exactly the subject of your study now, Peter? We have six very bright RMA students doing the, doing the, the hard work for us. So they're trying to, first, they have been dissecting these articles step by step, trying to find out what the, original, what the authors originally actually did, which is not an easy feat to accomplish. Because as Pim already indicated, it's, it's not always clear what scientists, scholars, historians specifically actually do. Um, and then they, once they find out what they did, they are going to try to do that again and see what happens. So see, first, if, and one of the findings that we already have, because we're in, in the middle of this project, one of the findings that we already have is that it's quite hard to get to actually uh, replicate um, these articles. So 
Um, I think here also it can be enlightening to add a distinction between two types of two aspects of replication. One is you could say the um, replication of the procedure, so following the same steps as the original researcher. So that's what we're trying to do now. And then you have replication in terms of results or outcomes. So that is that if you follow these same steps, so if you replicate the methods, the procedures, then in the end it would also lead to the same outcomes. And uh, even if you uh, don't agree with the latter, that you should get to the same outcomes in history, we think that you should agree with the former because it should be clear and open what you have been doing and how you get to your results. And we see now that it's not quite that is that's we see that it's not quite easy to accomplish that. So just doing the same because it's not clear sometimes where uh, certain references lead to uh, sometimes certain data. Uh, the provenance of certain data is uh, is unclear. Um, uh, the use of, of certain archives is a bit sketchy. And we see that, and I don't think this is because we have coincidentally found three bad articles. I think that we are stumbling, but I don't know what Pim thinks of this. I think we're stumbling into something which is quite common in history that we are just not so well developed in explaining what we are doing. Yeah, so, so the image I have now is Gandalf going back to Ministerith and trying to find out more about that one ring and then having to scramble through all those archives and then your students are the ones who read the article by Gandalf the White and then trying to retrace his steps through Ministerith. Is this, a, is this an actual, should I imagine it like this, Peter? Is this a Lord of the Rings reference? It is, yes. Because I <laughs> well have, spotted. <laughs> I have n neither read the books nor seen the movies, but oh, yeah. uh, so so it's a bit lost on me. But I th I think you're absolutely correct. Okay, uh, cool. And may maybe Pim, can you give us like a little bit more of a scenery? What what type of res historical research articles are these? What are they about? There are three different uh, articles from three separate fields within history, um, one from cultural history, one from socioeconomic history, and one from digital history. Can you actually specify in one of these uh, disciplines that you are targeting, which article have you chosen and how have you chosen that specific article, Peter? Um, in cultural history, we have chosen the, the article by Jonas Rulens, which was published in, um, I think, uh, five years ago in the Low Country Historical Review, so the leading uh, journal, uh, historical journal in the, in the Netherlands and, and Belgium. It's an article about uh, a very interesting topic, female sodomy in the 15th and 16th century. And he, uh, he, he researches that topic, female sodomy, and he shows that this was more often, at least more often prosecuted in the Netherlands, in the southern Netherlands, so present-day Belgium roughly, uh, then in other parts of Europe, and he tries to explain why that was uh, the case. Okay, um, Peter, but, but, but yes. before you continue, sodomy? Sodomy. Uh, yes, uh, 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 lesbian sex. Ah, thank you. Male sodomy was something that was much more prosecuted in these days than female sodomy. And being a historian, I cannot resist to explain that there's a difference between male sodomy and homosexuality. Uh, because male sodomy is the sex act, uh, sex act itself, and homosexuality would be would have been a nonsensical category for the 15th and 16th century people because they did not think in sexuality in terms of identities as we are used to now, which is completely a modern idea. But I'm not here to lecture about the history of sexuality, <laughs> how interesting it is. 
Um, so it's about uh, female sodomy. Um, and we chose this article not because it is such a, you could say, um, such a, a very attracting um, a topic in the sense that it, yeah, how should I put it, that it's a bit of a exceptional topic, uh, an important topic. Uh, uh, but it's, we chose it because it's the most read article from the journal. Aha. And another important um, aspect of, of our choice was that the article needed to be replicable. So if you have like a theoretical conceptual article, um, that is not as easy, easily replicable. Yeah, I mean, in, in addition to this, we didn't really know beforehand how, how to do this, how to select an, uh, a typical or a good study to replicate. And we... we decided to take some time to do so, to, le to let the students do this. Uh, and that was a very wise <laughs> choice. Um, we, we didn't expect this, but, but it, it really took us a while to come up with appropriate articles to replicate, um, to think about the criteria to do so, but, but also think about yeah, yeah, what, what, what you have to take in mind when, to, when you start replicating. Um, the feasibility that, that uh, Peter spoke about, for example, the, simply the practical feasibility, the acquaintance with uh, uh, particular methods and techniques, for example. But also, yeah, the overall criteria. But when does it make sense? Uh, when does our results as, as a project make sense? If, if we uh, were able to replicate a very well-known study or a, a not very well-known study by a, by a hotshot or by a PhD student. So yeah, be, because we only have three articles within the scope of this, this project that we can replicate, that, that was really, yeah, kind of a bothersome choice. And, and, and one of the things that, that we um, actually concluded at, at quite an early stage, well, uh, was that that it uh, wasn't very practical to take articles from from very well known historians from from really from the big shots uh, because well also based on a, on a small number of of examples of course but um, what we thought we saw is is that they often aren't very clear about what they do <laughs> maybe simply based on on their um, yeah, on, 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 on them being famous um, and may, may on their arrogance, ah, perhaps. That's the I word I wanted to hear. <laughs> we thought, well, yeah, yeah, maybe they simply think, yeah, it's me who says this, so, so you, you can expect it to be true. Yes, I want to add in defense of all these of all these uh, of all these uh, more senior colleagues. You were having um, such a fun time. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I wanted I wanted to say that you know. We have to. You have to be aware also of of that the type of article you write in history is very much dependent on your career stage. So I think if you re have a standard scientific article in other disciplines, then you have one moment of data collection, uh, one research question, one moment of data collection, and then you have a conclusion. But I think that a, a, a career of a historian studying, for example, well, let's take the example then of 16th century sexuality once more is often much more of a, of a, a career-long project, like it's cumulative. So you build up, you could say data, or you, you build up information over sometimes several decades. So after several decades, you can write a very insightful article, but you cannot say, well, uh, I have been uh, collecting data for 30 years in a very, uh, very, um, uh, very loose way, but all this together makes 
makes for an interesting finding. So I think that's, yeah, I think PIM is right to, to some extent, but I think it's also something that, that needs to be said in, on, on that part. Um, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, that's a real, but it, either way you look at it, it's really insightful because replication is, of course, also about are you able to do what the other person did? And I think from, for example, social psychology, we learned that a lot of people actually don't write down exactly what they did, which makes it very difficult to replicate a study. Uh, this is, uh, I think, the work of Brian Nozak I'm referring to. And maybe uh, moving a little bit back to the, uh, to the meta level, I, I was really wondering what is again, is open about this project and why is it is this happening now? Why 2020, 2021 and why not 30 years ago? Pim? Well, as far as I'm concerned, but maybe Peter will give a different answer, is um, it is uh, because of what I said before and, and what makes the digital history case interesting. Um, things are changing in, in, in science as a whole and therefore also in historical scholarship, um, the digital enables us to be way more open in, in, in all kinds of um, ways. Um, and this will change, we think, how, yeah, change the status of replication in, in our scholarship. This is the argument um, that historians hardly ever replicate um, each other's scholarship uh, also has has had practical reasons Be because yeah to do so you would have to travel physically travel to archives uh -huh. uh, you would have had access to literature etc etc now the digital datafication makes those practical hindrances um, yeah more and more obsolete it you, is. You can now visit the digital library of Minas Tirith. That's a very, yeah, that's a big difference. Exactly, and and even if archives aren't digitized, every historian uh, does this him or herself when doing archival research. They make photos, of course, and and why not share these photos? Why not use data repositories, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? So if this is actually going to happen, and I think it will, then this will make replication. Uh, easier and easier and maybe also uh, more relevant. Maybe historians will simply do this more often in the future because they can and that's why we have to start thinking about it now. Do you think that uh, you can reason your colleagues to do more replications or should the field wait for you know, some form of controversy before, you know, like we had it in <laughs> social sciences or other fields before they start to take this seriously, Pim? Um, I hope not. Has there been such a controversy that you can name? Well, this is how I. This is a story how I got into this specific project actually, because at first I had this discussion once with my sister, uh, uh, by the way, um, and she's she's a historian of science as well, and she said to me, "What do you think about replication?" I said, "Nah, that's nothing. That's nothing for us. You know, we're in this. What we earlier said, we're in this business of interpretation, and so." How can you replicate an interpretation? You know, you, you think you, you come up with this interpretation, which is very interesting and enlightening, and I come up with the other one, and then we see something different, and together we we move on, right? We don't know if it's forward or backwards, but we move on and we deepen our understanding to some extent. And then she pointed out to me an article by two American historians, Halle Lieberman and Eric Schatzberg, which actually is a replication, a replication of a famous study again in the history of sexuality this is this is a coincidence of the book uh, the technology of orgasm by uh, rachel mains 
and it has been a very famous book and it was about the use of uh, vibrators in the 19th century to induce female orgasms and main set. Uh, this happened on a large scale and it wasn't seen as a sex act because it didn't involve uh, penetration. Etc. So, and this made a lot of fuss, both uh, receiving public uh, attention, you can imagine, but also scholarly awards from the American Historical Association, for example. And then Lieberman and Schatzberg, who were in the same field, started reading the book and probably reading some sources as well that they knew. And, they, and then they, their eye fell on the fact that they just didn't see the same things as Mainz had, had seen. And so they systematically started to look at these, uh, at these sources and they, they said, yeah, we just can't find any evidence for, for her interpretation. It's simply not there. So, and then for me, I thought that when for me, the, my eyes went open and I thought, okay, this means something different, that we can have different interpretations doesn't mean that there are no interpretations that are out of bounds or out of limits. So we can have both. We can have coexisting subjective, deliberately subjective interpretations, which is what history, at least cultural and political history, is all about. But still we can have a discussion when, let's say, the, when the moment arises that a bold or a daring interpretation crosses the line and goes into non-violation, you could say, a scholarly misconduct, maybe even. So that's for me what, what, what was a moment that, that my eyes went, uh, uh, went open. So to answer the question, that's also, I think, that was for me a moment. I think for the discipline, this could also be a moment. Like other disciplines also had their moments. In social psychology, you can think of the Dietrich Stapel affair, for example. Uh, you can think of the, the Ioannidis papers in, in biomedicine, uh, etc. But uh, yeah. Right. Well, so it sounds like you guys, together with all your students, you could kind of big team actually together you're going to be finding a lot of new things and what i'm really wondering is for the finishing up of this project what are you going to deliver as an outcome is it going to be a new process is it going to be papers are you podcasting about it tell us pim alas no no um, no podcast but but we are going to write a white paper Alka, peter and i about yeah, how replication may be done in historical scholarship. And this really screams for uh, a continuation, right? To, to do this more often, perhaps, or to look at it um, uh, in a more in-depth way. That That's what we are trying to do now. We try to publish on what we are doing here. But this, yeah, you could say that this project will only have a real result or real success if if some of it is um, put into practice in, in, in the field in, in some way. Um, even if it's only in, um, in the way of, of talking about replication more um, before actually doing it. So are you doing special activities to make your own project be replicable? Yeah, well, th that's a very good question, and we are, and and that's um, yeah, that's something that that we have to remind ourselves of um, almost um, every week. Uh, we have asked the students who are actually doing the work, right, who are doing the replication, uh, to write an audit trail, so to to really ma make uh, or to log what they are doing on on a week to week basis. Um, and and uh, we we had a meeting, and I noticed that that um, that we we start really start checking each other, 
So how how repli how replicable is that what what you're doing now? And and um, the students um, incidentally started asking us, Peter and me, um, uh, this Tuesday. Um, yeah, how how does this project impact your own scholarship? Ah, um, yeah, which is which is very good, of course, and 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 it and it actually does. It 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 really makes you think how. Can you be as transparent as possible? How sh how transparent should you be? Yeah, so 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 it has a nice um, uh, feedback loop. This this yeah, uh, it's a project. true learning exercise, and we'll be happy to uh, hear from you guys when your white paper on uh, historical replication is published. Please mention so we'll mention it in our news section. And I think that's about it for today, the time we have. So we'd really like to thank you, Pim and Peter, for joining us today and telling us all about your project and hope seeing you in the past. That is it for yet another episode, Sunli. Do you have takeaways from this episode? Yeah, I found it quite interesting and found it very courageous of Pim and Peter and Alke that, you know, from a discipline which is can be seen very traditional they actually take this uh, viewpoint of exploring completely maybe less comfortable ways of doing their own uh, research and discipline i found it very uh, very courageous and respectable yeah and i think that the sense that they have of being allowed to fail or to try things a couple of times and not knowing where you'll end up i think that's very liberating with doing science right but on one other hand, I think they have a feeling that they are doing it right. So I think that gives them also extra motivation to continue. Yeah, perhaps. What is up in our new episode? Yes, so we are going to actually also touch yet on another very important topic, diversity and inclusion. And our guest is Kunul Dilaver. We'll see you next time in the Road to Open Science. Adio. Ciao. You've been listening to the Road to Open Science podcast. The Road to Open Science is an initiative from the Utrecht Young Academy and supported by the Open Science Platform at Utrecht University. This episode was edited by me, Lieven Heremans. Please subscribe to the podcast feed to stay up to date. I, no, I have to redo that. Um, mm -hmm. I'll do it from the top. Yeah, and then put a pause so you are really take a breath, man. Yeah. So. Ah, fantastic.